Hey everyone, welcome back to Great Quarter Guys. This is our episode 52. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. I've got Seth home with me as well. We are live from HQ2 in Chattanooga, Tennessee for the North American Supply Chain Summit. Last week in episode 51, we talked about the SoftBank investment in Flock Freight, the California-based freight tech company trying to rethink the LTL landscape with a shared truckload model. Well, Seth and I had a lot of questions leaving that uh, conversation. So we're going to be joined by Justin Turner here in a few minutes, who is the FBP of sales. He's an industry vet. He spent time at Stored and Coyote Logistics before that. So he's got a lot of industry knowledge, and he's going to answer our questions about Flock Freight and talk about the future of shared truckload and the LTL market. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to run through our gauntlet of interest, which is uh, you care or not. Nah. I'll give a bunch of events or topics for Seth and I to discuss whether we care or not and why. But before we do that, I've got to thank our sponsor, Bloom Global. Bloom Global enables shippers, carriers, and 3PLs to build a truly agile global supply chain. Bloom Logistics can replace or complement your existing TMS, allowing you to plan shipments, maintain end-to-end visibility, and automatically reroute freight at risk of being late, no matter the mode, via a single platform. Bloom Global. Move every move, every mode, every mile. To get started, visit bloomglobal.com. All right. Seth, first one I got for you. We've only got three here because we've got a limited time before our short commercial break before we bring Justin on after the break. First one is on Uber Connect. Uber Connect is the package delivery system that Uber has expanded from 25 test cities to now 2,400 cities as of last week. The new service leverages Uber's fast driver network, enabling drivers to haul local parcels in their cars. Packages cannot weigh more than 30 pounds and must be valued less than $100. Seth, you care or not about Uber Connect? I do. I do care. Um, you know, it seems like a cool thing. I mean, they're already doing a lot of this stuff in China and, and places where, you know, dense urban networks really sort of allow this thing. Why don't you tell everybody, though, because I don't still don't know that much about it. Why don't you tell everyone, like, give them give them a use case. And does it have to be delivered on a motorcycle? Does, does that mean it's just a totally separate driver base? No, I don't think it's a completely separate driver base. I think they're going to leverage the already two and a half or, you know, three million drivers they have in the U.S. to allow you to just open up your back seat and rather than carry people you carry a good uh it can be you know think business to business stuff if somebody needs something delivered within a short amount of time i'm thinking back to you know my days at the restaurants where we would run out of you know loaves of bread or something and we needed them delivered from across town at the bakery this is that type of scenario where instead of sending one of the uh, servers taking them off the floor to go get it you can now just have somebody from uber deliver it i think that's a that's a type of use case but i mean the use cases are only going to grow with this as they build it out uh i'll let you give your thoughts on it and then i'll come back and, and give my full thoughts yeah, I mean, I think it's a great idea in theory, and it's obviously it's just an enormous market if you can gain consumer acceptance and, and get people to do it. And, I mean, it sounds pretty convenient. It's available right inside the app, and you basically just, you, they know where you are, and you say where you want it from. Uh, if they can pull it off, I think it could be mm-hmm. really successful. Yeah, I think that's going to be the big thing is, is executing this. And I'm just happy to see, I wrote about this in last week's Point of Sale, which is our retail supply chain uh, newsletter. I wrote about that Uber is finally finding its way. And that's based on all of these divestitures we've seen in the last couple of weeks. In one week, they got rid of the AV unit and the uh, you know the aviation unit, the, the Elevate, Uber Elevate, the flying taxis. They've also gotten rid of Uber Freight uh, to Cinder, uh, the Uber Freight Europe to Cinder. They've gotten rid of their bike division. Uh, all of these aspirations, these big ideas that Uber had to, to be a dominant player in a lot of different markets, they're now realizing that they need to just focus on what they're really good at, which is moving goods and people short distances. So I think this is a great move. They already have the network for it. They're going to leverage existing infrastructure, and they're just adding a huge addressable market of freight or, or people to them that wasn't available to them. 
Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, and the, the stock market loves it, and their stock's way up, and they've essentially gotten rid of their Google moonshot division um, right. and, and just focusing on what they do best because uh, you're so early in the growth stage, even in ride-sharing. Um, you know, it's not like search where it's pretty mature. Um, a long way to go mm -hmm. in all this business line. And the, the last thing I'll offer here is that this thing could be a game-changer for you know small businesses and retailers that don't or can't own their own last-mile logistics capabilities. That's all, you know It's a big haul for a small businesses and retailers. You know, Uber, JP said this, uh, our, our director of passport research, JP Hampstead, he tweeted this the other day. He said that Uber's already proven that people will pay a premium for their, their user interface, their visibility, and their network density. You know, if Connect can grab, you know, gain some traction here, I think people are going to be willing to pay for that visibility, for the end-to-end, -end, uh, you know, the density of the network, and pay a premium. You're going to have a same-day delivery model paid for transparently and appropriately by the end user. So I think, I think it could work if it gains traction. It's going to be great. All right, so next one on is Tesla Semi. So Linda Baker, uh, a freight, a, one of a FreightWaves writers, she authored a, an article Friday stating the opinions of a handful of analysts that cover Tesla. Many of them believe that the Tesla Semi is a distraction. So Seth, is the Tesla Semi really a distraction? Do you care about the sentiment? And do you agree? I think it's a distraction in the near term. Uh, I, I think just from the investor community, I think hardly anyone is focused at all on this. Uh, I think they're w much more focused on China and ramping Model 3 production and getting all the new gigafactories going up. And Linda mentioned in her article, um, really this business in the near term at least just cannibalizes that Model 3 and that Model Y production mm -hmm. because it, it, you need so much battery capacity in, a, in an 18-wheeler, in a truck, that um, they really haven't been able to focus on it yet. But at the same time, I, I don't think we know any of the financial figures. I don't know how much time they're spending, how much money they're losing on this, and how much time. But they do have a pretty good order book filled with UPS, yes. uh, who was it, PepsiCo, uh, and several other uh, you know, major companies. So, um, you know, to me, I, I don't think it's that big of a distraction. What do you think? I, I do care about their sentiment, but I don't think it's a distraction. Uh, I think the big point to make here is that fleets don't seem to care about the delays uh, and about the, the you know, so-called problems that they're having with it. I just saw Walmart. This is Walmart Canada. They tripled down on their semi-order. Granted, it's only up to 130 units, so it's a very right. small order. Um, but, you know, Walmart aims to be emission-free by 2040. EVs and alternative vehicles in their trucks are going to be a big part of that. Uh, so I think that the fact that the companies are not, uh, you know, asking for asking for refunds on their orders, and they're actually doubling down and tripling down on their orders, that's a good sign. But I do agree with the sentiment uh, uh, in Linda's article that talks about the, uh, the 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 cosmetic manufacturing problems they're having, especially with the Model Y. We've seen some roof leaks and some seatbelt issues. Those issues, you know, you need to get those fixed. I think that's a bigger issue for me than being distracted by the by the semi. Uh, but, you know, once you when you go from delivering 120,000 cars at the end of 2017 to delivering 500,000 cars this year, you're obviously going to have some some cosmetic production mishaps. Uh, I think they come with the territory. So I don't think it's a distraction. And I think it's going to be a big part of their their goal that they eventually get to, you know, selling 20 million vehicles in 10 years. Right. And, and Elon's running three companies. So, um, <laughs> you know, how big of a distraction is the semi, you know? Um, yeah. When you're, yeah. Sense. Yeah, precisely. So last one I got here is, okay, it seems funny is every time I come back with more Amazon news, it's just Amazon and insert a new word for a new division that they've added. This time it's Amazon Fashion. They're continuing to beef up that offering. They've added a, a new service to it called Made For You, which is made to order customizable t-shirts. Initially, the offering is only for t-shirts, but Amazon has plans to expand this further as time goes on. 
it's pretty simple. You can tell them your height, your weight, and you send them two photos of yourself, and you can customize the fabric, the color, the length, the fit, the neckline, and the sleeve length uh, of customized T-shirts. So, Seth, you care or not about uh, Made For You? I do care, and it's not because of the, uh, you know, just on the surface what this is today, um, you know, which is just custom designing your own T-shirts that, that fit right. But there's a, you know, we can talk about, there's a lot of, uh, other implications here from from reverse logistics yep. to waste in the system. So yep. if you think about uh, online retail, uh, I think returns run somewhere around 40 or 50 percent. Some of the XPO uh, people that have been to our conferences have have talked about that, which is anywhere from, I think, three to four times physical retail. And so uh, I think also it kind of plays into the customization trends of retail. And as they expand, if, if this is successful and they can extend it, you know, to more product categories uh, and eliminate some of the waste in the system and cut down and help margins and cut down on cost, uh, I do think it's a significant deal. Yeah, I, I definitely care about this. I don't think I'll be using it, uh, although you've said that you've been buying Amazon clothing and you love it. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I haven't bought much clothing from Amazon. I don't think I'll use it, but I love it because it's going to have a lot of positive implications for the supply chain. We hear every week, all, all of these virtual events we've been doing, reverse logistics has been a big talking point, and everybody seems to be so focused on the post-transaction process. How do we make the returns process more efficient uh, and not waste so much money on it? But nobody's focusing on the, on the pre-transaction process, which is how do we just limit the amount of returns in general? And I think that's what Amazon's doing here. They're focusing on the pre-transaction uh, side of the process and not the post. And that makes a lot of sense. You can limit the amount of returns, limit the amount of waste in the system, make everything more efficient and do it cheaper. Yeah, that's second or third level thinking. It's actually a negative for the reverse logistics industry. But yes, it is. Yeah, we, we think there's probably some uh, some downstream effects for the off-price retailers, which I talk about a lot. They get all their, their stuff from returns. Uh, so, but... We've got a break coming up here. We've got about two minutes of commercials. Then we're back with Justin Turner, SVP of Sales at Flock Freight. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. So Seth and I are here. We're about to talk with the SVP of Sales at Flock Freight, uh, which is Justin Turner. Justin, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you guys? We are great. So I, we only have 20 minutes, and I really do want to squeeze every minute of this as I can. But you have got a quite quite an impressive of a resume in the freight and logistics industry. So give us a little bit of background on yourself and tell us how you got to Flock Freight. Uh, wow. Okay. So um, the the first part of my, my life, I was in the music industry. I guess you could say I was part of the digitalization of that industry where you used to buy an album on Sam, for Sam Goody for $15 and stand in line, and now you can download it on your phone for $0.99. Cents. So I guess you could say I lost a record deal, and uh, I decided to go to college and found my, my way into supply chain by working for the Army uh, for a couple of years. And um, I, I decided to take a different route and, and took an opportunity with a company called Coyote Logistics. Um, and, and worked my way through the organization and saw it through the UPS acquisition. I uh, had a, a moment where I was uh, vice president of sales for Global Trans. And, you know, that was my taste at a really large-scale LTL offering. And uh, ultimately really fell in love with entrepreneurship, though, afterwards and the infectious natures of startups. Um, and I started working with a, uh, an Atlanta-based startup shortly afterwards and found my way to Flock afterwards. Um, I, you know, I have a passion for transportation and obviously seeing, you know, you know, transportation at scale for two really massive, uh, you know, beasts like Global Trans and Coyote really helped, you know, shape the, the framework for why I, I fell in love with what we do at Flock. 
All right, so Justin, to, to Seth and I, we've, we've long thought that the shared truckload model has a lot of legs and a lot of promise for the industry. But for those not familiar with the shared truckload model, can you give us the, the value prop and the elevator pitch? Yeah, no, for sure. So, so what Flock does um, is we live at the intersection of LTL and truckload, right? The way we look at it is that we think LTL is actually great. We think LTL carriers perform a phenomenal service. But, you know, throughout the, the history of the industry, the, the carrier has basically dictated to the shipper what they consider optimal versus suboptimal. And generally, it's around a linear feed or cubic capacity line, right? For some, it's 10 to 12 feet, you know, 5 to 6 pallets. And in some cases, if you're a larger shipper, uh, that may be north of 20 linear feet or, or 10 pallet positions. Well, the reality is that, you know, the shipper has very limited optionality over that line. Um, you either fall into a volume LTL you know, classification, or you pay truckload. More often than not, the, the price of volume LTL um, is relatively close to the cost of truckload, right? And the truckload experience is one that's of, you know, faster speed, obviously less touches, um, obviously the, the lesser times you touch products, the lower the probabilities for damage and claims. So more often than not, shippers seem to buy truckload. So the reality is that the data says that on average, a third of every over-the-road trailer in North America is, is air, right? So only 66% of every trailer there actually has cargo, right? So what we want to do is, is carpool that 33, 33%, right? So what we want to do is fill that empty vacant space. Um, we want shippers to pay less and only pay for the amount of space that they're truly consuming. Um, and we want drivers to be paid more. Right, and how we bring those two worlds together are with our algorithms and data science. We allow shippers to pay for their portion of the asset um, and share the cost of that asset with a variety of different shippers and bring the high quality of the, the truckload industry, which is obviously, as mentioned, uh, faster speed, you know, no touches, no handling um, to the LTL industry. Let's talk about the market opportunity, Justin. Um, so, you know, the LTL market in the U.S. I think is, what, 60, 70 billion, Andrew, but truckloads 800 billion. So in terms of the total addressable market that you guys are actually attacking, how do you think about that? Is, is it a mixture of both of those, you know, the truckload and the LTL market? And sort of who is your ideal customer? That's a great question. Um, yeah, we, we do think it's a, it's a mixture of the both, right? Um, you know, again, we're, we're tackling, you know, a really heavy LTL, we're tackling volume LTL, we're tackling LTL that's typically considered suboptimal to the carrier. Um, and then obviously, subsequently, that freight goes to the truckload industry, right? I, I can't tell you how many times uh, we've moved a full truckload in my past life where it's 12 pallets and 20,000 pounds, 15 pallets and 25,000 pounds, right? So we are actually blending the, the two total addressable markets together. We estimate it's north of 300 billion. Um, because of that. And uh, again, you're right, we, we want our, our LTL shippers to um, have an experience that's outside the hub and spoke, that's hubless, um, that's obviously faster, higher quality. And then we want our truckload shippers also to really start to think about how they optimize their spend today, right? Is that truckload actually full? Right? I mean, you think about that. Definitionally, we just call it full truckload. And the data says a third of it actually isn't full, right? It's actually paying for air. Um, we've also ran data that has unpacked that there's over $7 billion in, in annual supply chain waste um, in that 33%. That's air. So um, when we think about the total addressable market, we, we find it north of $300 billion because we're attacking both segments um, equally.
Justin, that's a that's a huge subset of the market. Why hasn't someone done this at scale yet? You know, this idea doesn't seem that that outlandish. It makes a lot of sense on paper. Why hasn't somebody tried it yet? Uh, short answer is really hard. <laughs> uh, this is it's really really difficult. Um, our, our business today, again, I always want to make sure this is very clear. Um, we're not reinventing the wheel. I mean, carriers forever have done partials. Um, obviously, LTL carriers ship volume LTL. Um, but more often than not, if you unpack it, you'll realize that there's a consolidation center, there's a warehousing footprint, you know, in beneath or under it. And um, the reality is really, really difficult, you know, to do it outside of that consolidation footprint. So, you know, the reality is that for us, we, we live in a philosophy we call demand shaping, meaning that every single shipper um, needs to live in a target market, a target origin and ship on a tiered or a key lane for us. Um, everything we do is about timing and sequencing, right? You need a bunch of shippers shipping um, similar commodities um, with similar pickup and delivery expectations to allow the algorithms to create the pooling outcomes. And uh, I think that's a big reason why you've never seen it done at scale. Um, again, there are shippers that, you know, are carriers, excuse me, that do it. Uh, but again, you know, when, when you bring in the automation and you bring in, you know, what you have to do to execute outside of the hub and spoke, it, it's a very complicated business model. In terms of the, uh, the time and the cost, sa cost savings, could you give us an example or sort of a range of how you think about that? Versus uh, the LTL? time and cost savings? Yeah, so rather than shipping LTL and going through all those hub and spoke net networks, you know, it, it's gonna if it's only going on one truck, it's gonna save the customer time. So can you talk about that time and cost savings perspective? I know oh, yeah, yeah. We're like, we were looking at your slide and your uh, company presentation, and you know, you save customers on average somewhere around twenty percent. It looks like. Yeah. No. So so when we think about that, though, actually, our you know our, our cost model is actually more expensive than standard LTL. Um, again, because it's hubless, it is uh, it creates a, a different experience than offered through the traditional LTL hub and spoke. Um, so actually, our prices are more expensive than standard LTL. More often than not, when we think about cost savings, we think about total landing costs, right? I think I heard you guys earlier talk about RMA. We think about the total cost of dealing with claims, reclashes, reways, loss, RMA, right? The the whole um, the whole pie, I guess you could say. Um, and then on the cost saving side, we also think about truckload, right? If, if the vast majority of truckload shipments today are actually not full, um, then we expect to, to deliver between 15 and 30% cost savings um, to shippers that are buying traditional truckload. The vast majority of the industry today, when they think truckload, especially in an RFQ scenario, is point to point, right? Nothing in that today really you know, gives the shipper a dynamic model today that says, hey, well, if my shipment from Dallas to Atlanta, right, actually isn't full, I get a discounted rate. It's just $2 a mile, whatever that number is, right? It's just a fixed cost every single time. We actually have what we call the instant prebate program today that allows us to give the shipper a variable cost model for their truckload, right? Where they say, hey, very worst case scenario, you get the same truckload service that you expect out of any leading provider, but unlike the majority, if that freight actually isn't full, we want to lower that price and we want to pool it with the other 2,000 plus shippers that we have today uh, that are buying hubless LTL. So um, when, we, when you hear us talking cost savings on the LTL side, we're talking total landed cost savings. When you think about it as compared to truckload, it should be anywhere from 15 to 30 plus percent um, discount versus standard. Gotcha. Yeah, I was, I was actually referring versus the truckload. So that makes a lot of sense. 
Yeah. Uh, Justin, I, just um, explain this for me. I guess this is the technological side of things. If you know you, you have this hubless model where it only stays on one truck the entire way, uh, it's never offloaded. How is that possible? Is it just based on how the the freight is arranged on the truck to be able to deliver? Is that is that how that works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, we have a fascinating team here. Um, we have some of the smartest people I've ever been around. Um, we have a, a large team of data scientists, essentially mathematicians, that run probability math every day. And um, this business is all, again, based off time again sequencing. We call it LIFO sequencing, right? So, so last in, first off. Um, we make sure that every shipper is timed out and sequenced in a way that you can route a driver to pick up every single order. Uh, without that driver ever needing to stop and kind of transload or rework the freight. Right? Again, that's our value proposition to the shipper is that it's guaranteed helpless. We are not touching their products again. So in order for us to do that, we've been building those variables in our algorithms and technology for years that will allow us to position the freight in a way that when it gets to the tender level of the driver, um, the driver's routing directly through and, and never needing to touch the product again. Let's talk about, uh, so you guys boast, a, uh, we were reading a 99.9% damage-free, claim-free delivery rate. You've also got a 97.5% on-time rate. Uh, when you look at some of the blue-chip players in LTL, like an old Dominion, someone like that, they, they are not, uh, you know, uh, representative of the, the overall uh, industry. Uh, they, they tend to be at the top of the LTL category in that time frame. But in terms of, you know, the competitive pitch to a potential customer, how do you compete against, uh, you know, a traditional Old Dominion or a player, an LTL player at the top of their game? I mean, we think Old Dominion and not to even call out a specific carrier, we think the entire industry has its advantages, right? I mean, um, you know, one advantage of LTL for sure, they drop trailers, there's a terminal nearby when things go wrong. I mean, obviously, in inevitably, things go wrong in freight. Um, there, there are a lot of advantages to standard LTL. Um, when we think about our value proposition to shippers, we think of it as complementary, right? We think of it as, again, it's kind of that large volume LTL that, you know, maybe a large scale LTL carrier may say, hey, this actually isn't optimal for us, right? It's, it falls in the volume category. It's not even something we'd like to, you know, um, you know, price under a blanket tariff, right? So when we think about our service metrics, we want to bring the high service, high speed and quality of truckload to the, to the LTL industry, right? But at LTL prices, right? So um, again, we, we, we think of it as complimentary. Justin, I, I did. I was questioning myself. Uh, you know, w when you're when you've got, let's say, you know, the, I think your example was Polly's pickles or something that it ha it fills up a certain amount of the truckload, and then you fill it up with a with the next person's load that happens to be nearby. You know, how often does the truck actually get you know completely full? Does it does it require it to be completely full before you guys send it off, or what's the what's the minimum amount of freight that makes it work? It makes the model work. So we we hold ourselves to high standards. Obviously, we we want every single truck. You know, hopefully at scale to be 100% utilized um, today. I mean, we're still making improvements. Uh, on average, um, a third or, or more of every one of our trailers are full today. Um, but obviously, that's why we continue, you know, um, selling our business commercially to shippers. We want to increase the probabilities of them being 100% every time. And we we're fortunate today that the vast majority of the time, um, our trailers are absolutely full. So, Justin, what, uh, what's next for Flock Freight? We've seen some big news uh, with the investment from SoftBank. What do you guys plan to use the money for? How, what's the next year going to look like for you guys? That's a great question. I mean, we, 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 we want to scale. I mean, we, we saw our business grow 
exponentially this year. We want to continue investing in engineering and, and product and sales and operations. Um, you know, we're, we're really transitioning out of startup phase into early stage. And, um, you know, we want to continue spreading this brand globally. Um, we, we're fortunate to have a, a fascinating team of investors and, and people in our business every day that champion us uh, every single day. Uh, we have a, a, a great group of customers and carriers that we want to continue to to support and, and, and flourish. So um, that, that's our goals is to continue growing this business exponentially year over year. In terms of how the business model actually works, um, you know, if you think about, I assume you move probably both spot and contract freight for customers. And then d yep. in terms of how you guys monetize that, is it sort of like a brokerage model where, you know, you guys make the spread between the cost of the purchase transportation and then, and then what you charge the end customers to move that freight? Uh, I guess sort of, right? So we, we want the shipper to think of us like a carrier, right? So we don't, you know, have them thinking any, anything extra other than what's the cost for us to move the shipment from point A to point B. Um, what's actually very interesting about our business model is that when you take um, revenues from one mode, like an LTL, and put it in a truckload like us, you unlock a financial arbitrage, right? And it gives us the ability to take higher revenues to the truckload space and pay drivers more, right? So in, in a perfect state, uh, I call it freighttopia, right? We'd have every shipper in North America paying less for freight, receiving higher quality service, um, and drivers being paid more. And, you know, obviously something that we're really, really passionate about is our B Corp status. Um, I think we are the only logistics provider today that's registered as a licensed B Corporation, um, which is our just, uh, it's our corporate push for sustainability. It's our corporate position that um, we're building technology for a more green economy. So when we do those two things, right, shippers are paying less, drivers are paid more, assets are being filled and products are being touched less, um, we're reducing greenhouse emissions by 40%. Right. So um, that, that's really our value proposition for, for shippers every day. And, and obviously we, we, we contend that we expect we expect to continue expanding. Fine, excuse me. Uh, yeah, it seemed I was going to ask you, uh, you, you said that you have a lot of people champion, championing you. And that's obvious. That's very obvious when you look at your list of customers. You've got some amazing retailers, some very well-respected retailers on that list. What is it like new, capturing new customers? How are you guys going about uh, finding new customers? Is it anybody of any size from you know, small businesses to the biggest retailers in the country? Or is there any certain segment of the market that you guys think is better suited for you? Um, you know, we want to talk to any shipper that feels like they have the problems that we solve. I mean, just to be completely frank about it. It doesn't matter the size. You know, um, we, we definitely do target shippers and, and key markets. You know, um, for us, we do want to, you know, continue to penetrate shippers with considerable volume out of key markets, um, and we want to create the right outcomes for them, which is um, a higher quality experience, ensuring that their products get delivered on time, um, and obviously that they're reducing their carbon footprint. So Did we don't really... Uh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, Justin. I'm sorry. No, I just said, you know, it, it doesn't really matter size. I mean, our, our core competency is definitely large. SMB and metal market shippers today. I mean, as you mentioned, um, Andrew, we do have some some large enterprise level shippers today. Um, but our, our core competency is to make sure that we're solving their problem today, and that can that can happen in a variety of shipment size. Well, so you guys were founded what about five years ago? I think I read. Um, may, may, could you put some numbers around just how big you are in terms of uh, the size of your carrier and your shipper network? 
Uh, yes, we were founded uh, five years ago. What's really, really interesting about our story is that our, our founder is from the industry. You know, um, he founded an asset carrier 20 years um, ago and uh, found success, you know, managing a hundred plus fleet, um, just like a lot of stories today uh, in, in our industry. Um, and, and decided to branch into what we do today based off of seeing some some really significant inefficiencies in the space. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's nothing new. Like every broker and carrier out there is partially freight as much as they possibly can. But I think everybody would admit that it, it's very inefficient today. Um, it's mostly manual processes and lacks automation. Um, so, you know, five years ago, he set out to build this company. It was actually called Optics prior. Um, and we rebranded last year to Flock Freight. Um, in, in terms of our size today, we're, we're, we're north of 2,000 plus shippers. We're north of 30,000 plus carriers that are all pre-qualified and registered in our network today um, that are you know, enjoying a new opportunity to, to move freight that would typically be in a different network um, that's now living in truck level. Justin, I got to say, I do love the rebrand. I think Flock Freight's got a good ring to it. I did want to ask, uh, you, you seem to be focused on the drivers so far throughout this discussion, that you're, one of the big points for you guys is to increase uh, driver pay. We've only got a minute here, but I just wanted to ask, you know, how, how do you guys go about recruiting drivers? Do you, are you aimed at going to getting any owner ops or any very small fleets? Or are you working with uh, bigger carriers in your network? It's interesting. We, we work with carriers of all sizes. Um, we definitely do not discriminate. Um, we, we definitely think that owner-operators and mid-sized carriers seem to be a little bit more acceptable to this, right, where we can route them throughout North America, you know, hauling pools. Um, we can give them, you know, first right of refusal um, to, to haul our products, you know, with high service levels. Um, and then, obviously, we talked about the financial arbitrage earlier that allows us to pay drivers more. You know, at the end of the day, if we could accomplish filling every trailer to capacity, um, drivers being routed to key markets um, with mitigated dwell time and ultimately increased hey, driver pay. I think we've done a Justin, I'm sorry. I've got to cut us off. I've got production in my ear telling me to, to get on. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll have Thanks, you on Justin. soon. You're the man. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much.